So now that we know a little bit about the history of Thanksgiving, let's move on to the next big holiday, Christmas, my favorite time of year. Now, for most people, Christmas is all about the presents, unfortunately. But how did such a supposedly sacred holiday become a festival of greed? Not many people know the history behind Christmas gift-giving, and it will probably shock you when I let you know. This year, Americans will spend somewhere in the neighborhood of $600 billion, that's billion with a B, on Christmas. But most people have no explanation for why they're buying all these gifts. Those that are Christian will tell you that they are doing it to celebrate the birth of Christ. But gift-giving on this holiday actually originated long before Christ was born. Others will tell you that they're just following tradition. But most of them have absolutely no idea where the tradition of Christmas gift-giving originally came from. The truth is that most people simply don't care about the history. They're just excited about all the stuff that they're going to get on December 25th underneath the Christmas tree. But you all know me. I just can't pass up the chance to talk history. So here we go. In early America, there was no Christmas gift-giving. In fact, the Puritans disapproved of celebrating the holiday. And in some areas, the celebration of Christmas was actually banned by law. On May 11, 1659, the Massachusetts Bay Colony Legislature even went so far as to officially ban Christmas and gave anyone found celebrating it a fine of five shillings. Now, the legislature stated the ban was needed, and I'll quote, for preventing disorders arising in several places within this jurisdiction by reason of some still observing such festivals as were superstitiously kept in other countries, to the great dishonor of God and offense of others. It is therefore ordered that whoever shall be found observing any such day as Christmas or the like, either by forbearing of labor, feasting, or any other way, upon such account as aforesaid, every such person so offending shall pay Ever, every such offense, five shillings as a fine to the county. So there it is. We actually banned Christmas. Now the ban remained in place for 22 years until it was repealed in 1681 after a new surge of European immigrants brought a demand for the holiday. However, opposition to the holiday lingered well into the 19th century when many New England children were required to attend school on Christmas Day. Now you ask, weren't the Puritans Christians? Didn't they want to honor the birth of Jesus? Well, of course they were Christians. They took their faith incredibly seriously, but they also knew their history a lot better than we do. Most Christians do not realize this, but Christians did not celebrate anything in late December for the first 300 years after the time of Christ. The only people that celebrated anything at that time were the pagans. Now some of you may be aware of the great Roman celebration known as Saturnalia, but most people don't know that our tradition of gift-giving can be traced back to that holiday. Saturnalia was an ancient Roman festival in honor of the god Saturn, 
held on the 17th of December and later expanded with festivities through to the 23rd of December. Now the holiday was celebrated with a sacrifice at the Temple of Saturn in the Roman Forum and a public banquet followed by private gift-giving, continual partying, and a carnival atmosphere that overturned Roman social norms. Gambling was permitted, and masters provided table service for their slaves. Eventually, the Romans began holding a festival at the end of Saturnalia on December 25th called Deus Natalis Solus Invicti, which means the birthday of the unconquered sun. Throughout the empire, the rebirth of the sun was celebrated. The winter solstice was past, and now the days were starting to get longer again. It was therefore a logical time to honor the rebirth of the sun god. When the Roman Empire legalized Christianity in the early 4th century, the Roman government began to put a lot of pressure on church leaders to fit into the broader society. So eventually, the birthday of the sun god was moved to the time when the rest of society was celebrating the rebirth of the sun god. December 25th was first celebrated as the birthday of Jesus in about 336 A.D., and in the year 350 A.D., Pope Julius I officially decreed that Christians would celebrate that day from then on. Of course, Jesus was not actually born in late December. The evidence that we have indicates that he was most probably born in the fall. The only reason people celebrate the birth of Jesus on December 25th today is because the Catholics of the 4th century wanted to appease the pagan Roman government and the pagan culture at large. In the Middle Ages, Christmas was a two-week period of celebration, from Christmas Eve to the twelfth night of January the 6th, hence the Twelve Days of Christmas Carol, written in 1780. The middle-aged twelve days was a time of feasting, parties, and, of course, the giving and receiving of seasonal gifts. The Christmas gifts would include generous lords giving items such as clothing and firewood to their serfs. The origin of the English word Christmas is from the Old English Middle Age Christmas, which literally means Mass of Christ. Over time, the practice of gift-giving during late December faded, and by the early 19th century, the big tradition was actually to open presents on New Year's Day. But then the merchants saw an opportunity. According to historians, advertisements for Christmas presents began appearing in newspapers in the United States in the 1820s. During the mid-1800s, entrepreneurs seized the opportunity to sell holiday trinkets and gifts in the streets from carts and stalls. Children in particular liked this way of celebrating Christmas. It was around 1840 that children began to hang their stockings by the fireplace, according to the Connecticut Historical Society. New York's population grew nearly tenfold between 1800 and 1850, and during that time, elites became increasingly frightened of traditional December rituals of social inversion, in which poorer people could demand food and drink from the wealthy and celebrate in the streets, abandoning established social constraints, much like Halloween night or New Year's Eve. 
These rituals, which occurred any time between St. Nicholas Day, a Catholic feast day observed in Europe on December 6th, and New Year's Day. They had for centuries been a means of relieving European discontent during the traditional downtime of the agricultural cycle. In a newly congested urban environment, though, aristocrats worried that such celebrations might become vehicles for protest when employers refused to give workers time off during the holidays or when a long winter of unemployment loomed for seasonal laborers. In response to these concerns, a group of wealthy men who called themselves the Knickerbockers invented a new series of traditions for this time of year that gradually moved Christmas celebrations out of the city's streets and into its homes. They presented these traditions as a reinvigoration of Dutch customs practiced in New Amsterdam and New York during the colonial period. Using two-story collections written by Washington Irving, their most well-known member, these New Yorkers experimented with domestic festivities on St. Nicholas Day and New Year's Day until another member of the group, Clement Clark Moore, established a tradition of celebrating Christmas with his enormously popular poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas, better known as The Night Before Christmas, in 1822. The St. Nicholas that Moore presented in his famous poem was like the other traditions of the Knickerbockers borrowed and transformed. His delivery of presents to children gave department stores a helping hand in selling toys, and by 1888 children were invited to meet a real-life Santa Claus in the stores. By the early 1900s, newspapers were even carrying page one stories about how Santa in his sleigh, filled with gifts, was on the way to reward those well-behaved children. Around this same time, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol became a hit as it spread throughout the nation in 1867 and 1868. Being cheap and stingy at Christmas time would convey that you were too much like that money-grubbing Ebenezer Scrooge. The myth of Santa, family rituals, and the desire to be generous have helped make this the most giving time of year. The average consumer is expected to give 24 presents and spend almost $900 according to the National Retail Federation survey. However, for all the efforts of businessmen in the 1800s to exploit the season, Americans persistently attempted to separate the influence of commerce from the gifts they gave. What emerged was a kind of dialogue between consumers and merchants. Americans started wrapping the gifts they gave. The custom had once been merely to give a gift uncovered, but a present hidden in paper heightened the effect of the gesture, making the act of giving a moment of revelation. Wrapping also helped designate an item as a gift. Large stores began to wrap gifts purchased from their stock in distinctive colored papers with tinsel cords and bright ribbons as part of their delivery services. Over time, Christmas gifts came to be associated with a mythical gift giver in cultures all over the world. Of course, in the United States, this mythical gift giver is known as Santa Claus. So what about this whole Black Friday mess? Historians believe the name started in Philadelphia in the mid-1960s. That's right, modern times, 1960s. 
Bus drivers and police used Black Friday to describe the heavy traffic that would clog city streets the day after Thanksgiving as shoppers headed to the stores. Businesses, however, didn't like the negative tone associated with Black Friday name. In the early 1980s, a more positive explanation of the name began to circulate. According to this alternative explanation, Black Friday is the day when retailers finally begin to turn a profit for the year. In accounting terms, operating at a loss, losing money, is called being in the red because accountants traditionally used red ink to show negative amounts. Positive amounts, profits, were usually shown in black ink. Thus, being in the black is a good thing because it means stores are operating at a profit. Well, even in the first decade of the 20th century, people and organizations began to criticize this new pattern of gift-giving that emerged in America. Given the poor quality of the gifts and the considerable time it took to purchase, wrap, and deliver them, no wonder progressive-era reformers looked for alternative ways to celebrate the holiday that were less burdensome and more gratifying. That's right, folks, even back then. The liberal progressive movement was there telling us how things should be. Their movement paid the way for Christmas cards, which became the ideal small gift for acquaintances and business associates. A survey of the mail system in 1911 reflected this shift, showing that the total number of items posted had increased while their total weight had dropped significantly. In 1906, the Consumers League formed the Shop Early campaign to discourage last-minute purchasing, a practice that strained everyone in the retail trade. The League also pressured stores to maintain regular store hours throughout the holiday season so that their employees could fully enjoy the celebration. They maintained and publicized a list of stores that complied in the hope of encouraging shoppers to choose them over stores that place more burdens on their employees. In 1912, progressives also established the Society for the Prevention of Useless Giving, known as SPUG. That's right, the Society for the Prevention of Useless Giving. Its goals were to curtail the presentation of what they called gym cracks, showy but shoddily made gifts, and to curb the practice of store clerks giving presents to their supervisors, which they felt were extorted rather than heartfelt. The general success of the progressives in reforming Christmas, as well as previous efforts to mold the festivities, shows that the celebration can be changed, just like any other cultural phenomenon. So folks, don't accept current complaints that Christmas has spun out of control and dictates our holiday behavior, driving us to ever higher levels of spending. What do you think? Are we stuck at the mercy of an ever-expanding Christmas buying season? Or can we as consumers rein in the control that retailers now have over our holiday season? And perhaps we all look back to the true meaning of Christmas. Hi folks. How would you like seven steps to improve your critical thinking? Now, critical thinking, we've heard so much about that. That's what, you know, the, our educators are supposed to be providing to our students. But has anybody ever really explained what critical thinking is? It's interesting to listen to a quote that Ralph Waldo Emerson had. He says, what's the hardest task in the world? To think. 
Thinking is the hardest work there is, which is the probable reason why so few engage in it, is what Henry Ford said. Now, every day I'm amazed at the amount of information I consume. I listen to the news in the morning, check my social media accounts throughout the day, and watch some TV before I go to bed, all while getting constant updates via email and social media. It can be overwhelming. But things get really interesting when some of that information is biased, inaccurate, or just plain made up. It makes it hard to know what to believe. Even with all the competing sources and opinions out there, getting the truth, or at least close to it, matters. What you believe affects what you buy, what you do, who you vote for, and even how you feel. In other words, it virtually dictates how you live your life. So, how can you figure out what is true and what is not? Well, one way is by learning to think more critically. Now, critical thinking is as simple as it sounds. It's just a way of thinking that helps you get a little closer to the best answer. Critical thinking is just deliberately and systematically processing information so that you can make better decisions and generally understand things better. So the next time you have a problem to solve, a decision to make, or information to evaluate, here are methods you can use to help you find the truth. Number one. Don't take anything at face value. The first step to thinking critically is to learn to evaluate what you hear, what you read, and what you decide to do. So rather than doing something because it's what you've always done or accepted what you've heard as the truth, spend some time just thinking. What's the problem? What are the possible solutions? What are the pros and cons of each? If you really evaluate things, you're likely to make a better, more reasoned choice. As the saying goes, when you assume, you make an ass out of you and me. It's quite easy to make an ass of yourself simply by failing to question your basic assumptions. Some of the greatest innovators in human history were those who simply looked up for a moment and wondered if one of everyone's general assumptions was wrong. From Newton to Einstein, questioning assumptions is where innovation begins. If everyone is thinking alike, then somebody isn't thinking, according to George S. Patton. Number two, consider motive. Where information is coming from is a key part of thinking critically about it. Everyone has a motive and a bias. Sometimes it's pretty obvious. Other times it's a lot harder to detect. Just know that where any information comes from should affect how you evaluate it and whether you decide to act on it. Number three. Do your research. All the information that gets thrown at us on a daily basis can be overwhelming, but if you decide to take the matters into your own hands, it can also be a very powerful tool. If you have a problem to solve, a decision to make, or a perspective to evaluate, get on Google and start reading about it. The more information you have, the better prepared you'll be to think things through and come up with a reasonable answer to your query. I have a personal library of over 3,500 books, and I use them all the time for research. You have access to your local library and an unlimited amount of good information on the Internet. Don't rely solely on Google. The Library of Congress alone is a great source of information. Another great search engine that I use a lot is called RefSeek, R-E-F-S-E-E-K. It contains over a billion books, Documents, journals, and newspapers. 
When you're trying to solve a problem, it's always helpful to look at other work that has been done in the same area. It's important, however, to evaluate this information critically, or else you can easily reach the wrong conclusion. Ask the following questions of any evidence you encounter. How is it gathered? By whom? And why? Our fourth step, ask questions. I sometimes find myself shying away from questions. They can make me feel a little stupid. But mostly, I can't help myself. I just need to know. And once you go down that rabbit hole, you not only learn more, but often discover whole new ways of thinking about things. I tell people all the time, there are no stupid questions. That is how you learn. Sometimes an explanation becomes so complex that the basic original questions get lost. To avoid this, continually go back to the basic questions you asked when you set out to solve the problem. What do you already know? How do you know that? What are you trying to prove, disprove, demonstrate, critique, and so on? The fifth step, don't always assume you're right. I know that's hard. I struggle with a hard-headed desire to be right as much as the next person, because being right feels great. However, assuming you're right will often put you on the wrong track when it comes to thinking critically. Because if you don't take in other perspectives and points of view and think them over and compare them to your own, you really aren't doing much thinking at all, and certainly not the critical kind. Human thought is amazing, but the speed and automation with which it happens can be a disadvantage when we're trying to think critically. Our brains naturally use mental shortcuts to explain what's happening around us. This was beneficial to humans when we were hunting large game and fighting off wild animals but it can be disastrous when we try to decide who to vote for. A critical thinker is aware of their biases and personal prejudices and, they influ and the influence that they have on objective decisions and solutions. All of us have biases in our thinking. It's awareness of them that makes thought critical. Number six, break it down. Being able to see the picture is often touted as a great quality. But I'd wager that being able to see that picture for all its components is even better. After all, most problems are too big to solve all at once, but they can be broken down into smaller pieces. The smaller the parts, the easier it'll be to evaluate them individually and arrive at a solution. This is essentially what scientists do. Before they can figure out how a bigger system, such as our bodies or an ecosystem, works, they have to understand all the parts of that system, how they work, and how they relate to each other. I think this is a primary reason why so many people have been successful in solving major problems. They seem to have the capability to take complex issues and break them down into something we and our, our rest of our fellow man can understand. That is part of critical thinking. Seven, the final step, keep it simple. I'll say it again, keep it simple. In the scientific community, a line of reasoning called Occam's Razor, O-C-C-A-M-S, Occam's Razor is often used to decide which hypothesis is most likely to be true. This means finding the simplest explanation that fits all facts. This is what you would call the most obvious explanation, at least until it's proven wrong. Often, Occam's Razor is just plain common sense. 
when you do your research and finally lay out what you believe to be the facts, you'll probably be amazed by what you uncover. It might not be what you were expecting, but chances are it'll be closer to the truth. Some of the most amazing solutions to problems are astounding not because of their complexity, but because of their elegant simplicity. Look for the simple solution first. So in conclusion, critical thinking is not an easy topic to understand or explain, but the benefits of learning it and incorporating it into your life are huge. So remember these seven simple steps. One, don't take anything at face value. Two, consider the motive. Three, do your research. Four, ask questions. Five, don't always assume you're right. Six, break it down. And seven, keep it simple. I'll close with one quote. Anyone who stops learning is old, whether 20 or 80. Anyone who keeps learning stays young. Again, another great quote by none other than Henry Ford. What do you think, folks? Can you adopt critical thinking in your life? Better yet, can you pass it on to those who refuse to use it? Well, folks, that's all the time we have for this segment. Thanks for listening to True History with Professor Jim Paisley. See you next time.